0: Shop Asian-American and Pacific Islander-owned brands at Macy's.com or in-store. It's the time of year when we're all thinking about goals and priorities. Now is the time to plan your next trip. Whatever kind of travel fills you up, whether it's lounging on the beach, connecting with family and friends, or going on a foreign adventure, Expedia has the tools you need to plan a great trip. Download the Expedia app or visit Expedia.com to start planning. You do need to be a one key member to use price tracking. Signing up is easy and free. Expedia made to travel.
1: I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time, taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. Hi,
2: Viola. Hi, Hi, Oprah. So good to see you.
1: (laughs) So good to see you too. Just let me offer my deepest congratulations on your Golden Globe and your SAG Award nominations for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Thank you. Mm.
2: Thank you very much.
1: (laughs) The incomparable Viola Davis has done it again. With another jaw-dropping performance, A nearly unrecognizable Viola transforms herself into Ma Rainey, the real-life mother of the blues, in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, streaming now on Netflix. The film, based on the play by Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright August Wilson, covers a single recording session on a sweltering hot day in Chicago in 1927. But at the heart of the story is so much more, racial injustice, the transformative power of the blues, and what it means to fight every single day for dignity. Viola brings the full force of her talent to this role, and the late Chadwick Boseman is electrifying in his final screen performance. He plays Levy, a trumpet virtuoso coping with deep-seated trauma. You have so many awards already. So when you do a role like this and the awards start to reveal themselves, what does it feel like for you? Is it a great
2: affirmation? You know what, Oprah? It's a combination of a great affirmation, but also a a fear. Of? Well, the imposter syndrome follows everyone. I don't care. I mean, I, I feel like it's sort of a false narrative if I said that. You know, every time I get an award, I just walk off the stage and I feel like the boss. I feel like it's affirmation, but real in reality, those three words keep playing over and over in my head, which is, and now what? You start the next Ah. job, you get on that set, and for a minute you feel like you're just starting all over again. They're gonna be found out that you're not as good as people think you are. You have an added responsibility, an added visibility. It's fear. Mm-hmm. It's something that's deeply human, I think. But yes, it's an affirmation. I I always have to, I have to remember that little girl growing up in Central Falls. Yes, that makes me feel good for a little while longer.
1: <laughs> not only just growing up in Central Falls, but living under such circumstances, you know, yeah. where. Roaches and mice and everything, just trying to stay alive and thrive. Yes. And now, look at this glorious life.
3: Go
2: spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispie, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
1: Because her parents lacked opportunity and resources, Viola has described her childhood with her five siblings as living in abject poverty, often going without food. Her internal drive and fierce talent brought her to the prestigious Juilliard School of Performing Arts. She then spent years mastering her craft. On television, Broadway, or the big screen, Viola has become one of the most acclaimed actors of our time, earning an Emmy, two Tonys, and an Oscar. Commanding performances in Fences, Doubt, and How to Get Away with Murder, to name just a few, have built her legacy. After we taped our interview, Viola received an Oscar nomination for Best Actress for Ma Rainey, making her the first black woman in history to be nominated for four Academy Awards. I have to tell you a quick story. When I was watching A Raisin in the Sun on Broadway years ago, during intermission, someone said, oh, isn't Felicia Rashad marvelous? And I said, is, is she in this play? <laughs> yeah,
2: I saw that same production, yeah.
1: So I must tell you, I felt that same way about you watching this film. I was watching with two of my daughter girls from South Africa, and that opening scene that is, you know, so boisterous and Vivacious and all. I said, "Who, who is that? Who is that?" (laughs) And one of the girls said, "You know who that is." I go, "I don't know who that is. Who is that?" And they said, "Mom, Oprah, it's Viola (laughs) Davis." You, you. you... (laughs) I went, "Oh yeah, I, I can see her in there now that you mention it." But I'm telling you, you were so immersed, you were unrecognizable. Was that your goal?
2: Thank you. Well, that really is always my goal, but (laughs) this character is probably further away from me in terms of just the look, in terms of everything about it. So that is a goal, you know, you have to become another human being is what you have to become. Yes. But you know, it's like that opening scene, that opening shot, it took some time to make the decision in terms of the makeup and in terms of the look. It took a leap of faith on my part because I did not want the makeup to look pretty. I didn't. Ah. One of the reasons why I didn't is, see, the thing about our profession is, in acting, you have to study life. It's got to be about life. And we know, me and you know, that life is messy, right? Right. And when studying Ma Rainey, people who knew her said that her makeup under the lights looked like it was melting, looked like melted grease paint. Mm. And then I thought Ah. about the heat. I thought about the fact that before this, she did coon face shows with her husband, Pa Rainey. And I thought to myself, what if the makeup is beautifully imperfect? Beautifully imperfect and theatrical. And I remember when I started out as an actor, we had to get makeup boxes. They were Ben Nye makeup boxes. And if you were an actor of color, you had to get the black makeup box. And the makeup was really heavy. It was called Dark Negro, Light Negro, <laughs> Light Egyptian. It had names like that. So I imagine what that would look like, you know? And I actually thought, when I saw it, I said, for me, that was something specific as opposed to just falling into the general notion of just wearing pretty makeup, just to wear pretty makeup.
1: That's how you started to craft her from the makeup. I was wondering, did you start with the look, the dialect, the movement, what comes first? But for you in this instance, it started with what she was going to look like and what that makeup would look like? And then how did you begin to layer? Because it's such a layered performance.
2: Well, really, I had to start with the given circumstances. And, you know, unfortunately, Oprah, with so many, and, and I will say this there's so many black people who have lived that have done extraordinary things, and there's no information about them. There's very little information about Ma Rainey. Only seven pictures existed of her. I mean, people said things about her like she would be in church on Sunday, but then she would be at an orgy by Monday. She was a bisexual. She went to bars and beat up grown men, but she was very kind, you know, just a mass of contradictions. I had to deal with that first. That's what I had to deal with first. And she had a mouthful of gold teeth. If someone says that about a human being, then that's who they are. And then after that, I ran out of information. There just is not a lot of information out there. So then I had to rely on what I know about life and what I know about women, the women that I know in my life, the black women in my life. And I started with my Aunt Joyce. I'm not gonna lie because (laughs) I loved my Aunt Joyce. Other than my mom, she was the first woman that I knew that was absolutely beautiful. She was a woman of a bigger size, but for me and my sisters, every time we knew she was coming, we sat by the door. She always wore the latest fashion. She was extraordinarily confident and extraordinarily flawed. She was with my Uncle Red, who she always bossed around, and she always tried to boss around my father. They would get into it. She would take, take her earrings off. And then she would, you know, take her shoes off. She would yell at my... I mean, I, I relied on what I know about life to sort of fill in the blanks with, with Ma.
1: How much of what was happening at the times in terms of systemic racism being blatant in the face of particularly Black women played a role into the creation of her? Because, of course, those were the times. I watched that lovely 60 Minutes interview where you talked about the drinking of the Coca-Cola was, of course, not about the Coca-Cola. No. So how much of the construction of her was about those times?
2: A huge part of it. This is during the Great Migration. This is during a time when there was great promise for Black people there was a hope of getting beyond your circumstances and sort of redefining yourself. You know, and this is a woman who was coming from the Deep South and Chitlin Circuit shows, which is the only shows we were allowed to perform in. Yeah. And then you add on to that, which it's something that I always want to interject into narratives even today, is that she's dark skin, black woman. She is a woman who's not considered beautiful and valuable and worthy. See, they all go hand in hand. And at the same time, she is famous, but that fame is not getting her the golden ticket into that school of worth. But she was very much a liberated woman because I feel that she did not fall prey to the traps of her time. She fought for herself. From the moment you see her, she is fighting for her worth. When she did eventually retire, she literally bought a theater in her hometown of Columbus, Georgia. And all of these artists who came through town performed in that theater, and she got a cut of the money. So I felt a resistance with Ma with what was going on in the times. And here's the thing, I think that that's valuable because All the stories of insurrection, all the stories of my husband's mom, his grandmother, people who did speak up for themselves, people who didn't just bow their heads, people who did have moments of understanding their worth, they're sort of buried under there. I felt that Ma very much was a product of her time and understanding that there was limitations of where she could go with it. But at the same time, her voice was something made from, I don't know, supernatural allies, supernatural forces. I mean, this is a woman who knew that she was the show from the moment she walked in the room. I love that line. She knew she was the show. Yeah, it was a hard thing to navigate. But I I always hope that when people watch it, they understand the weight of Toledo saying, we're the leftovers. Yeah. Of Ma saying, all they want is my voice. They don't care nothing about me. Of the weight of her saying, Irvin has been my manager for seven years, and the only time he invited me into his home was to sing for his white friends. Just the weight and the value of that. Because I think from the moment you see her, fur that she has wrapped around her neck, even though it's not cold, that everything is telling you that I'm worth it. You don't see me, but I am worth it. If I have to punch it into your face, if I have to use the Coca-Cola, if I have to yell at every band member, if I have to make people wait for me, that I wanna show you that I'm worth it.
1: Yeah, and that's what that Coca-Cola is about not only having him get the coke, but the way she drank the Coke, like taking her time with the Coke and making noise with the Coke when you drink the Coke.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> I know, watching you drink that Coke, I got, oh yeah, we used to drink Coke out of a bottle, and that's what it sounded like.
2: And I had peanuts in it too, by the way, salted peanuts. And peanuts in oh, peanuts? Oh man, I was eating the hell out of those peanuts too. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs>
1: <over>. <laughs> oh my God. I didn't know that was a Central Falls thing. I thought that was strictly No, it's a, a, a country thing. thing. I didn't yeah. know that. <laughs>
2: Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispie, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
1: You described the opening scene from our Rainey's as probably the most unbelievable experience in your entire career. Why was that?
2: Oh, you had to be there. That's the only thing I could say it was... Absolutely, first of all, just going into that tent with the big bales of hay and the sort of little makeshift stadium seating, and then hundreds of extras, black extras, dressed really specifically with their bags of popcorn, and they were all waiting for the show. I mean, they were all waiting. You know, it's like my makeup artist said. He said he got into this profession because he always wanted to Experience time travel. And that's what it was. It was time travel. And then when I came out on the stage, wow. the men screaming and sweating and saying, Oh, Ma! Wow. Ma! Ma! They were there. And oh, Anne wow. Roth went to each and every one of those audience members and she explained their costumes, the material that they were made from, uh, you know, the time period, what was going on. And so by the time those actors came into the tent, they had stepped into the scene, honestly. Because here's the thing, Oprah, there is a resistance to specificity when it comes to Black artists. There is sort of either a general notion of who we were or we exist in metaphor. But there's no exploring that absolute specificity of how they bought the tickets, of what they were eating when they were sitting in that theater, where they were coming from, how each of their hair. And what they were wearing, how they would have thought about what they were
1: gonna wear and getting that hair done to show up for that performance. Ugh. Absolutely.
2: And then to actually be there and to have people believe that I was who I was, Wow. I can't say more than that. It's, it sort of was like Nirvana. And I'm a shy woman in general. I'm really introverted. So that was a lot for me to stand up in front of people and flirt with men in the audience. That's a lot for me. <laughs> That's not me. I love the
1: LA Times review where they wrote, resplendent in bold spangly gowns and sheathed in form padding rubber. Her Ma Rainey is both a stellar performer and a mesmerizing object of contemplation. How much did the costuming and the gold teeth also help you?
2: Well, they helped me believe that I was her. That's how it helped me. It it helped me believe that I wasn't Biola anymore, that I could sort of disappear, that I sort of, you know, as an actor, you have to be an observer and a thief, right? Yeah. You have to observe human life in order to morph into it. And the fact that I did not want to cover up my breasts as mom, because I know that the women I knew who grew up, you know, and their breasts were hanging out, they just let them hang out. I never knew people who covered them. I didn't know those women. I actually didn't even know the people who even always mopped their sweat. After a while, they mopped it or whatever, and then they just let it drip. So did you do all of your own vocals for this film? I didn't. I did some of them. I really did. You know, in hindsight, I wish I had more time because I would have done the vocals. I had very little time because I was doing how to get away with murder.
1: You were doing this at the same time?
2: Oh, no. When I, you when I really miracle. got the role, then I had just a couple of months to prepare, but I was still juggling how to get away with murder. It was the final season, it was the final episode. Yes. So there was a lot of juggling.
1: When you finished that last day and were in the process of beginning to let her go, I don't know how that shows up for you. Do you let her go on the day of the last shot? I'm very, yeah. But when you had finished, did you know you had served her well, that you had brought her spirit alive in a way that people could receive it and know who she was in a way that we didn't before your performance. Did you understand that, Viola Davis?
2: Well, Oprah Winfrey? <laughs> <laughs> I hope that I served the character well. I will say this, I had one of the best experiences of my life. Wow. So I felt like I was armed with all the tools to be able to morph into this character. I felt good about it, but you just never know how it's gonna land. You just don't. Listen, you have more control on stage than you do on screen. You just do, because you're not looking at yourself. It's not predicated on what you thought you did and how it actually looks. But I'm really good with letting a character go I really am, I just walk away from it. But I had a great, it was a perfect experience. It was just one of those experiences where all the artists came together in the most perfect way because it's not just on me. It's the makeup, it's the hair, it's the costumes, it's George Wolfe's direction, it's the other actors, it's Mm -hmm. everything coming together at once. It's the only collaborative art form.
1: Yes. And we now know that it was uh, the last performance of Chadwick Boseman, who passed away last year, the age of 43. What will you remember about Chadwick's
2: legacy? What I'll remember about his legacy is his integrity. Mm. And I know that people say that so often. People say that to the point where it's ridiculous. I mean, they dole that out just like they dole out the word brilliant. But there's not a lot of integrity out there it just isn't. I mean, I think it takes a lot of courage. You know that is true. You know, to be you know authentic. Know that is true. You know And like they say, courage is just fear said with prayers. But I just felt that, that he was not interested in being a movie star as much as he was concerned with being a really great artist. There was a sense in Chadwick that there was some other force operating besides the the earthly realm there was something transcendent about him like he would play the djembe drum in his trailer and he carried that djembe drum with him everywhere he said viola and i do it just for me i play it just for me i don't care how well people think i play it And you know what's called the talking drum. It takes on the spirit of whoever plays it. And so you would go to your trailer and you would hear him just playing it with everything that was in his body. Wow. There's something different that was going on there.
1: Yeah, yeah. Transcendent in a way that you
2: can't, there's no language for, really. There is no language for it. And you know what, he did not like being Famous. although I really, really believe that he was grateful. He's too much of a generous spirit to not understand that he was blessed. But I don't know if he liked it so much. And the thing about that is because you're serving sort of two masters. You're serving that image that is out there and then you're serving you. And they are diametrically opposed. He wasn't interested in the famous image. That was not Chad's thing. He wasn't even interested. He had left Black Panther behind.
1: And you're so right, Vi. You're so right that the word integrity gets thrown around. People say, oh, that no, 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 was brilliant. And one, I can't, I, I've actually asked everybody on my team, please stop using the word because it's so overused. Amazing. Everything is so amazing. But it is rare to find someone who actually lives out of the spirit of themselves in such a way that you feel and their integrity is duly noted at all times. Absolutely. I read one of the ways that you discover a character is to ask yourself, what are they living for? And when I read that, I thought, that is such a profound question to ask of building a character and also in your own personal life. What are you living for? And when you answered that question for Ma Rainey, what was the answer?
2: Value. Worth. Great. Every last one of those characters were fighting for their value in a culture that erased it, in a past that erased it. And so how do you hustle for your value? What does it look like? For instance, if you walk into a room and you don't like someone because of their actions, say it's a woman who is very flirtatious. She's probably overtly sexual. She probably says things that are inappropriate. So you make a judgment based on those actions, right? And whatever that could be. A lot of times with women, we have a tendency with women like that to not like them. OK, but if you sat down with them and they shared their story that she was sexually abused when she was a child. And she talks about how traumatic that was. And she talks about how she, I don't know, feels dirty. Then all of a sudden you see those actions in a different context. Yeah, that they are a tactic a tactic that is an extension of her maybe seeking love, seeking some semblance of wholeness. And then it's hard to go back to just not liking them. Right. You understand the whole human being. Now, you as an actor, you have to understand that because you are the character. So you have to understand the motivating factor. You cannot just deal with the mask that the person puts on. And the mask that someone like Ma Rainey puts on, if you don't understand it, and that's another conversation I would love to have, but it gets into a different arena. (laughs) But if you just looked at Ma Rainey, you would just think, diva, she's a diva. She's not a diva. She's a person who very shortly after this is over is gonna be rendered invisible. Irrelevant. She is what Carrie Fisher said fame is nothing but obscurity waiting to happen. She's being overshadowed by people like Bessie Smith, who she taught. She can't copyright her own material. She's with a manager who is bilking her out of money. She is a black woman living in America in 1927. So when you look at that and, and you deal with that context, Then you see the sheer depth and scope of who she is.
1: I loved when I heard that your experience with August Wilson, who wrote this play back in 1982, that your experience with him was that he had said to you, you were beautiful. And my question to you is, when he said to you, you were beautiful, could you receive it and believe it?
2: Oh, I received it. I received it. I received it only because it made me feel wonderful. And you know, there's a part of that that's devastating to me with Black women because I still feel, very much feel, with the intersectionality, even in feminism, that was sort of still rendered invisible. That there is a part of us that's still sort of fighting to be accepted into that fold of womanhood. I'm not saying that we wake up every day saying, please, you know, um validate us. Yeah. Um right. but there is a part of being protected, feeling wanted, uh, feeling desired.
1: Desired, Desire. desired. Desired, yes. yeah, desired, that's the word that yes. still
2: is escapes us. I mean, I see it even in movie making in in terms of the films that are made with women. Yes. The only thing we have is strong black girl, black girl magic, which all of that doesn't really help you in your day-to-day mental health. We are way more vast than being strong, but a huge part of that has been put on us through history. We are vulnerable. There are times when, listen, I wanna be protected. There are times I'm, I'm very hurt, you know, when people just are sort of okay with saying, you're ugly. I've had reporters say that to me. I know Carrie Mulligan is out there now, which I absolutely love, by the way. If I see her, I will shake her hand and hug her. Well, after COVID. But where she, <laughs> a reporter from Variety, I guess, in a review said she wasn't hot enough for a promising young woman. And I guess he apologized, and people are demanding more of an apology. I I get that. My thing is, where's my apology? I've had a lot of interviews uh, or reviews where people, especially during How to Get Away with Murder, she's ugly, she's not vulnerable enough, so I'm not gonna watch it. Like literally saying that in a review. And do you feel
1: that apology will come due with this racial reckoning we're having, or supposed racial reckoning we're
2: having. Here's the thing about an apology, okay? And please take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt, is a lot of apologies are coming now because of the cancel culture. Nobody wants everything that they built to be completely erased, okay? So a lot of it, and. I don't know which ones, are coming from a place of not sincerity, but protection and survival. Protection for themselves. Absolutely. Don't cancel me. The real part of an apology comes from a revelation that you've done wrong and you want to make amends. But I don't believe people understand that yet. They don't understand the depth and the scope of systemic racism and how it has metastasized into a cancer that permeates how you see me, your perception of me, your lack of perception, your uh, microaggressions that are so pervasive. So I don't know how an apology can come from that. I don't. Because there hasn't even been an acknowledgement yet no, there's not been an acknowledgement yet because we, we have not had those really hard conversations.
1: Our beloved Cicely, as we know, passed recently, and you wrote that gorgeous forward in her memoir, Just As I Am. Yeah. And she says in her memoir, Just As I Am, she says that every character was able to leave her with something, left her with something. I want
2: to know, what did Ma Rainey leave with you. Oh, man, I I have to say this. Just knowing my worth, I cannot stress that enough. You know, Brene Brown talks about it. I didn't know that you sort of come into the world worthy. I really didn't. I felt, you know, you have to, you know, get an education. You got to go to the top school. You have to look a certain way. And so I didn't know that it was something that was already in me. And there was something about putting on that padding and swishing my hips in the room and telling that band that it's what I say, what I say goes. And Ma listens to her heart. Ma listens to the voice inside of her. There's something about playing Ma that became an affirmation for Viola. Because I've always been the shy girl. But there is a feeling when you reach a certain position where I'm at that there is a power that you need to harness. And Ma helped me to harness the viola power, the feeling that I deserve to be in the room, the feeling that I deserve all that I have received in my life because I worked for it. I
1: came away from watching that performance thinking, first of all, in awe of what it took you to do it and my sincere, deep belief that you had brought her to life through your immersion into her. And also just like, I just thought about all the black women of that time and what it would take to be the kind of woman who could say, you are gonna give me my money Absolutely. And that is where we come from, and we come from that. That's the stuff we come from.
2: Yeah, we do. We come from that sort of history. We're coming from a history where Black women were chattel. Yeah. And if you read Joyce DeGuy's Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, all of that is rooted in our past. They'll get over it. They're strong enough. They may have been traumatized in the past, but they're like... Animals, they just recover very, very fast. I'm sure that Ma, that that was her every day. Your worth and who you are was defined by a system that didn't recognize you as a human being. So then how do you evolve from that? Well, you did it. Whether you recognize you did it, (laughs) I hope
1: you certainly do come to know that you did it. You served her well. You served her up to the world. And we thank you, Viola Davis. Thank you so much for your talent. You have a great understanding of human behavior, you know? Like interpreting human behavior in such a way that you can literally create a human being's life on the screen. That is what you do so beautifully. So thank you. We'll be watching for you this award season. Hey, I hope you enjoy it. Wear some pretty gowns.
2: Oh, I'm going to wear some pretty gowns. And enjoy it all. (laughs) And have my best accessory, which is my husband. (laughs) That's
1: beautiful. Say hello to Julius and Genesis for me, okay? I will. I will. (laughs) Blessings, blessings to you. I always appreciate you.
2: I do. I love you.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much. Love you back. I'm Oprah Winfrey. And you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations,
2: the podcast.
1: You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for
3: listening. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks.